This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor at the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm so excited to tell you where I am today. We took a little trip from Altamont over to the Pine Bush, and on the edge of the Pine Bush is a house where Stephanie Peck lives, and we're sitting now in her music studio, which has not one, but two pianos. And we're hoping as part of this podcast that she will be playing for us because she's a composer as well as a musician. So thank you so much for letting us come to your home, Stephanie. You're welcome. Um, It gave me a good excuse to clean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, it looks immaculate. Mm, Well. No? (laughs) So don't look anywhere else. (laughs) I first met Stephanie, I was shocked to see it was six years ago. I looked up the story I did, and I had been covering the Gilderland schools, and there was a boy there that just loved her because she was teaching him how to use a Braille machine. And as I talked to him, I learned that Stephanie was... She's not doing this now because she's busy with so many other things in her life, including a job with the Office for Temporary and Disability Assistance at the state. But at that time, she was sending books in Braille to a village in Malawi. And I just kind of like to start with that because, to me, it shows several of the really exceptional things about Stephanie. She crosses into other worlds as if it's something we all do. Tell us just a little about that project and how you got involved in it. Well, what started it was I started corresponding with a gentleman in Malawi because at the time, this was a little before 2000, I guess, I was producing a newsletter for people who were disabled who were either raising dairy goats or other kinds of goats, and this gentleman wanted to receive it. He happened to write me about it just as I had put the last issue out and had notified everyone that I wasn't going to do it anymore. And so I said, well, I'm not publishing that newsletter anymore, but I would be more than happy to correspond with you. So we started writing back and forth, and it soon became apparent through his letters what the there was a, such a great need for education uh particularly for blind people in his country which was Malawi and especially for people who were in the rural parts of Malawi where access to education is much poorer and not as easily um available so I started sending books and magazines in Braille and on cassette, and one thing led to another, and before long, I was collecting these books and magazines and other materials from other places, and after about six years of this, he told me that there was enough materials that they were opening a library for blind people. And so he would load up books and materials on his bicycle and take them to different areas in his region so that people could read. And then, you know, they would come and come to the library or study at the library. And at the height of the 
whole program. He was offering classes for blind children and adults, and I can recall one letter in particular where he mentioned there was a woman who had always wanted to be a teacher, but no one would give her a job because she was blind. And because of this library, she was able to become a teacher of the blind, being a blind person herself. And they taught cooking classes and farming and sewing, and it was just a really amazing testament to what people can do if they just put their mind to something and don't don't look at the end as the goal so much as just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, That's a wonderful life philosophy. <laughs> and I remember you told me at the time how there was sort of a, a strong stigma about being blind in rural parts yes. of Africa and that this actually brought people into being part of society. It did, and I think one, it... I think there's a lot of misconceptions for anyone who is different than the majority group. Um, a lot of times they, these misperceptions sort of go deeper down as society develops, so they're not as obvious uh, after a while, but especially in rural areas where... Um, at least in this particular one, there was the sense that being blind or having any other sort of disability was shameful, not only for the person who had it, but also for their family. So a lot of times these people were just sort of kept hidden. You know, they wouldn't, if they went out, it was to beg. Um, but a lot of times they were just kept in their houses. And there were often references in letters from this gentleman in Malawi about how family members of these blind people were so amazed that, you know, this is my mother who's blind and yet she can cook or she can garden or she can sew. And it, I think it's, you want to become like that little pebble that you toss into a pond you don't think about what you're going to do on the other side because the ripples will just go across that pond and somehow will affect something. Just be the pebble and take a dive and see what happens. Another great lesson, but it's something that most of us, I think, don't start with. And I didn't introduce Stephanie as someone who was blind because it seems almost like an aside to all the things she's done in her life. She graduated from Gilderland High School in 1990, and I think you were the first person that went through a regular curriculum being blind. You took your, your dog to school with you. Yes. And mm -hmm. just tell us a little about how you got to be that kind of a trailblazer. I mean, where did that strength come from? Because when you're a young person especially, there's so much... Um, pressure <laughs> not to be different or not to stand out mm -hmm. and how, how did you become that person that could just forge ahead and and do those things well the, I think it's important to note that that doesn't come overnight and mm -hmm. it it can come and go mm -hmm. um I know the last two years of high school with my dog there were days when I wished I could just disappear and be like everybody else. And then, of course, there were days that, like most teenagers, you think, I am the, you know, the 
biggest and most important thing in the universe and the whole world should revolve around me. <laughs> um, and it didn't matter if you were the center of attention, as long as it was good attention. But anyway, um, my parents really instilled in me um, that so many people have bigger problems than I do or we do. And it's we're here and this is how we are. So get on with it. <laughs> that was pretty much the, the attitude. So, you know, okay, you can't see. Well, 99% of the population can, and you're going to have to live with all these people and not expect special treatment or things to, oh, you don't have to do that. Um, so just do your best all the time. Learn so that you can be the best all the time. You know, not that you're always going to be first place in everything, but you really have to be able to stand up for yourself and be responsible for yourself. Well, <laughs> yeah, but that's hard enough for anybody. But when you have something as large as blindness to cope with, it must be... I did talk to your mother briefly when I wrote about you those years ago, and she just had this attitude of like, what do you mean? What's, what, you know, Stephanie can do anything she sets her mind to kind of attitude. Well, that's, that's pretty much, and I think some of that is, is um, just personality, too. Um, I'm fairly even-tempered, easygoing, but... I really like to be the best that I can and know that I've given something my best attempt. Um, I don't want to say that I can't do something until I've tried at least enough times so I know I really cannot do it. <laughs> but there comes a point sometimes there, where you say, yes, I can't there's definitely a point this, that yeah. I, will, I will say, nope, can't do that. Um, and I think that's really important to know that about oneself. Um, and there's so many ways that you can learn that. It's not just things you get from your parents or things you get in school. Some of it is just lessons you learn from living, you know, getting into relationships, getting into situations and then getting out of relationships and situations. <laughs> it's a, yeah, an eternal <clears throat> struggle. Yes. So tell, tell us about music. How did you come to discover it, be so good at it, and <laughs> particularly I'm interested in composing because that's beyond <laughs> my imaginative skills. Um, I've always enjoyed being creative, um, writing, composing, just anything that is creative is, is really enjoyable to me. And uh, so... Finding a way to use that creativity and put it to productive use and make a living with it was something that I hadn't really considered until, oh, I don't know, <clears throat> well into the 2000s. Because, you know, as a college student, I had done some composing, but not anything Except because I was assigned to do it. And this was <clears throat> Ithaca College that you went yes. to? Yes. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, just beginning on the piano, I, it was it something you took lessons as a child? I did. Yeah. I did. Um, I started when I was very, very small. I was three. Oh, wow. And so um, 
I wouldn't say that the lessons when I was that little had, I mean, they're, the way you teach and learn as a three-year-old is very different than how you would as a seven-year-old or a ten-year-old. So crawling around under the piano might not be somebody's idea of a good idea as a lesson, <laughs> but it. Um, I had terrific teachers. My first teacher taught me from the time I was nine until I was 12. And, and who was that? That was Emily Lorraine. And she, all of my teachers very much instilled in me to always listen to the sound that you're making on the instrument and showed me with many, many examples how every instrument sounds different. So all the pianos sound different than all the other pianos. Really? And so you can tell like a piano has kind of a personality? It does. And I think they're actually, um, you know, we don't really think too much about pianos as living things because they're made of wood and metal and they just sort of sit there until somebody comes and plays it. But really, if you think about what a musical instrument has the capacity to do, they really are amazing vehicles for expressiveness and conveying things without saying them with words, which is so terrific because words are so imperfect in so many situations and always seem to fall short or get used. You know, we'll say something and go, oh, why did I say that? Or I wish I could say that better. (laughs) And sometimes it's just great to be able to sit down at an instrument, play something and have it go to a person's heart without all that language getting in the way. Yes, and it's <laughs> universal, too. It you is. Don't you don't have to... Have to have there's no language German barrier. Yeah, right. No, no. But just the mechanics, if this isn't an awkward question, like, you can't read music, so is it all memorized? Or how do you... I learned Braille music. Oh, um, there is actually, Braille? I yes, didn't know that. There there's is. like a system where you yes. feel so, the music. I right. See. And it's actually done the same way as Braille in for reading braille so it's got the six dots mm-hmm. that are combined in different ways in fact the person who taught me braille music was agnes armstrong who's an altamont resident yes and, and a reader of our newspaper <laughs> and listens to our podcast so. more than anyone i would say she really planted that seed of the importance of musical literacy and um I was fortunate enough after coming out of college to connect with a group called the Music Education Network for the Visually Impaired, which is a group of international musicians, teachers, parents, and other people interested in music who are blind or connected somehow with the blind. And they have an online discussion group where you can ask any question I'm actually a specialist for them in international keyboard music collections for Braille. And Tell me what that means. International keyboard, keyboard musical. International Braille keyboard collections. So the Library of Congress in the United States has a collection. Sorry. Just so you know. Fidgeting dog. Sitting right at <laughs> Stephanie's feet is her dog, yes. Shadow, who yes. really is like a soft, silky, silky shadow with big brown eyes. And yep. every once in a while, Shadow will, is it a he? Yes, it's a he. he will ra- wag his tail or come looking and licking the edge of, <laughs> of her sandaled foot. So go ahead. You were yep. talking about this collection of Braille music. So um, 
many countries have libraries that contain Braille music collections. And so um, because I was a pianist or am a pianist and because I um, am always interested in what resources are available, I got asked to be a specialist for this group in these Braille music collections from other countries. And so... Um, so how it, do you even find out about, say, a collection in Germany? What countries are involved in this? Um, Germany has a very large one. The United Kingdom, um, those are probably the biggest. The United States, France, Spain. Um, so European mostly. So mostly European, but only because those were the countries that were producing Braille longer than, say, Brazil or... Um, uh, Morocco or something, but no. So Braille uh, is relatively recent. It's like, what, 1920s no, or the something? The Braille system actually was developed by Louis Braille in the 1820s. Oh, 1820s. All right. um, but it wasn't century. really... <laughs> in Paris. Yeah. He was at the School for the Blind in Paris. Yes. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so he... It didn't really get adopted universally during his lifetime, and it took several decades for it to be accepted because it was such a new concept up until that time blind people had been asked to read using raised letters or engraved letters that just copied what the print looked like Mm -hmm. and the thing that's neat about the braille system is it's got six dots that fit perfectly under the fingertips so you can you can read an entire letter and read very rapidly just using your fingertips yeah, I was amazed to watch Stephanie read. She brought in the New York Times to our news office. <laughs> and it was, I, I kept it for years because it was such a wonderful thing. It was mm. like thick, you know, pages and her fingers just <laughs> go dashing along. I mean, faster than my eyes would read, I would say. Well, now what's terrific is because of the advances in technology, there's so much Braille out there in digital format that a lot of people now don't even have to use those um, Braille on paper anymore. So how so, does that work digitally? I don't understand. How would you feel it digitally? If you can, um, there's little machines that have small displays that will allow you to display a row of, of braille cells, which is what those six dots are called. Um, <clears throat> and you can read a line of braille and then scroll down just like you would on an iPad or your oh Kindle. Oh my goodness. So, huh. I'm sorry, I got you off the track because you were talking about this international music collection. So how do you correspond with these places and what what sort of commonality do you find among them? All of the correspondence for this particular group is done online. So, Mm -hmm. of course, the discussion board is not super active, but it's, you know, if someone has a question, they'll post it and people will put their responses up. Um, So often the questions that relate to piano or where to find piano music will be when I chime in with an answer. I don't feel any need to answer questions that I'm not qualified to answer. And so if somebody is asking about trombone music or where to find opera scores in Italian, I'm not going to put my two cents in. (laughs) But if it's piano, if it's piano, well, not necessarily because some of it is, you know, there's other people on this list. I think there's probably anywhere from fifteen hundred to two thousand people that are part of this discussion group. And so, if someone has already posted an answer that is a good answer, why should I 
add to it. Mm-hmm. So, but um, anyway, to go back to the Braille music instruction and um, Agnes Armstrong, I have worked for many years with a an author <clears throat> who has developed a very good course on learning Braille music for students and was fortunate enough to work as his editorial assistant. Um, and we've collaborated now for over 17 years. And so one of the things that I did was composed pieces of music for students to play as a supplement to this textbook that he wrote. And since um, we're sitting right next to your piano, <laughs> is there anything that you can easily play for us that would fit in with this discussion, the sort of things that you compose or whatever you want um, to play on your piano? I just feel like it's calling to us. <laughs> it's, uh, how do you say the name of it? I, that is a kawaii, K-A-W-A-I. A kawaii, and yep. it's um, a grand piano, yep. and it's just... Shiny. It looks like a patent leather shoe that's been polished and polished. Yes, never have a black piano in the pine bush because it seems like the sandy soil and the pine pollen. Oh, well, this one's (laughs) gleaming. It's just gleaming. You almost have to dust it every day. Yeah, it's beautiful. But would you be able to just play us a little something? Sure. I I was planning on doing that more towards the end of everything. All right. um, Well, if we want to wait till the end, we can do that. Um, Yeah, that's fine. Okay. But when you, do you decide, you wake up in the morning, I'm going to compose a piece of music today, (laughs) or does it like come upon you? It it depends. Um, When I was doing compositions for commissions, so for example, when I was working on this project for the music to go with a textbook, Mm -hmm. and the title of that book is actually Creative Ensembles for Beginning Musicians, and you can see it at www.dancingdots.com. And what is Dancing Dots? Dancing Dots is the name of the publisher. I see. <laughs> that, and the dots are like the braille dots? Yes. Is that the idea? Yeah, I love it. That's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Um, so for, for things like that, then I definitely have a particular goal in mind or what I'm trying to teach, and then the music has to accomplish that task. You know, how would I teach someone the difference between a black key and a white key or um, to play with both hands at the same time or to play chords, just very concrete things that I want to teach. Well, let's just take one of those. Like a sighted person, we can see a black key and a white key, but how how do you? Well, the black keys feel different. They're they're raised and they're in groups of two and groups of three. So... Um, all of the navigation that I do on the keyboard is done by touch. And um, as I said, I had excellent teachers all along, um, but probably one of the best teachers I had was the last teacher I studied with who was a woman in Kansas who hadn't taught for over 35 years. Oh, my. She, she... Her name was Ann Shocker, and she was a student at Juilliard, graduated from Juilliard with a degree in piano, and was very excellent. But she ended up um, developing rheumatoid arthritis and had to stop playing and had pretty much given up on, you know, she just couldn't play. 
Um, I happened to meet her in 2006 at a convention for an organization in Minnesota because I had won an award. <laughs> and so... What was the award? The award was the Vivian Nelson Prize. It was for performance and it was for um, musicians who were disabled. And I just entered the contest on a whim and stuck an old tape recorder up on top of the cabinet that's in the corner there, sat down and played for <laughs> for 15 minutes and said, well, that's the best I'm going to do. And Let's... you won. And I did. I thought, oh my goodness, that's crazy. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> so, anyway, so then you traveled to this convention I traveled to this convention, and you met her there. And that was a story too, because at the time, my guide dog was 90 pounds and huge. And the only seat on this bus that we were both traveling on was next to her. And so I said, well, I beg your pardon, can I sit here? And you're going to lose all your leg room because of my big dog. And she said, oh, that's fine. I have a golden retriever and I'm missing her right now. <laughs> oh. And that's the whole start of this thing. Oh, isn't that um, great? But she, you know, we, we talked. And, of course, as part of this convention, I had to perform. And so she got into conversations with me about composing and the music that I was writing for students and things like that, and asked me to come to Kansas to play for a fundraiser for their high school that was building a new music school. And in the process of that trip, she said, I would like to teach you everything I know. If you can find a way to come out and study with me, I'll teach you. Because she can't because play herself. She and couldn't she play to herself. Pass it on. Yes. So, what makes a good teacher? You said she was the best teacher. What What are those qualities? She, and I think, the. I've heard it said when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I don't think I was ready for a teacher like her. Until then, I was in my 30s. I had done all that stuff where you're a teenager and you're in your 20s and you have that crazy idea. I'm going to be the best pianist in the world. And, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you get reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> and I don't know, you go, I, I went through a period where I kind of sulked about that. <laughs> um because, you know, my ego was a little bigger than it should have been, probably. And then I had to just say, okay, I'm okay with how I am as a pianist. I'm not going to be the best. I'm going to be the best pianist I can be in my world. But probably never the best in the world. And that's fine. Um, so so you were ready. I was ready point at this life. point to just accept the pianist I was or mm-hmm. could be. And what she did was she looked at how I was playing mm-hmm. and said, you can't possibly get any better if you keep playing like that. And she took my technique apart and basically retaught me how to play oh from the start. Goodness. And this is after years of playing because you started This is after like 30 now some odd years. <laughs> so you really must have trusted and respected this woman. I respected her tremendously. Yeah. Um, and did when she took apart your technique and put it back together, did that stick? Oh, yes. Yes. It, it, it was a huge battle for a long time, and it uh-huh. took years for it to settle in and be natural and feel natural, uh-huh. where I didn't have to think constantly about how to do things. One of the things that I used to do all the time was a split second before I would play anything where if I'm up here on this note 
and I have to jump down to this note, I would check. Even if I was playing something extremely fast, I'd always check before I played. And as a result, I was never thinking about exactly where I was at the exact moment. I was always worrying about something that was a fraction of a second like beyond where I was. And so I had to get to a point where I would just give that up and trust, and trust hey, I've <laughs> I've been playing the same kind of keyboard for 40 years. It's not like they're going to revise it tomorrow and say, oh, by the way. <laughs> so that note will so still be there. That note is still going to be and there. you just had to trust your, your yes. what is it, instinct or your... Instinct and just to... Learned The response? other thing that she really taught me was how important it is to practice the fundamentals. And I relate it to figure skating. If you ever watch um, the Chinese and the Russian figure skaters, they work forever on just basics, fundamentals. Yeah, part of the Olympics, we, we covered the Olympics up in Lake Placid. This was in 1980. So, right. And there used to be a part of the competition that no spectators watched. Right. Which was just them <clears throat> literally carving figures mm-hmm. in the ice. Just, right. Yeah. So the approach is that you... Do nothing but the basics at the beginning. No pieces, no. It's not fun. And you don't try to make it fun. It's so what just, are the basics? Scales? The basics are scales and arpeggios and all okay. those things that you need to know how to do because every scale feels a little different under your hands. And if you know what a scale feels like and if you know what a, a chord feels like, then even if those building blocks are rearranged in different ways, you know what it feels like to play a D mixed with an F sharp mixed with an A, which feels much different than a D mixed with an F white key mixed with an A. And Stephanie has turned completely away from the piano now, facing me, and just (laughs) reaching down and finding these notes without... I mean, I guess in some ways, could blindness be an advantage for this idea of trusting your keyboard and your sense of where things are? I don't know. You're not distracted by looking at it. Maybe. I I really don't think too much about it. But she really got me away from that guessing and second-guessing and anticipating how long did that whole process take to it's, rebuild your technique it's still ongoing it's are it's you still never... in touch with her do you no she passed away in 2010 so oh dear um, yeah but so. she must have felt good that she had passed that on i to think you. so as long as i was playing well otherwise she was <laughs> you know she was a very she was a taskmaster yeah um, so what is your own teaching style i know one of your students <clears throat> who's a sighted student and she just takes delight in coming here so what what is it that that you do as a teacher that I try to so I'm not quite hardcore enough to qualify as a teacher like the Russian or the Chinese um the the technique is important but but what do you mean the Russian or the Chinese I'm not I'm sorry reference um like I said about the figure skaters where the the where it's all method all the time I see first um plus in the United States we haven't taught that way in so long that it it wouldn't translate well for American kids most of the time. So I try to encourage children to learn to read notes, but also learn to listen 
every time you touch the piano, whether you're just starting out or if you've been playing for years, pay attention to what you sound like. So I don't want somebody, someone to come in and just pound on the keyboard like, you know, an animal. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even if you're just fooling around, it should sound beautiful. Pay attention to what you sound like. Um, I try to foster creativity, and I really try to figure out how students learn, because not everyone learns the same way. So I don't teach everyone in the same book or the same method books. Um, so as you work with them, you come to understand their yes. own approach to learning and yes. shift mm-hmm. how you teach. There's students. certain kids that are really drawn to more serious um, books and a little drier, like textbook kind of teaching. And then there's kids that just, if you gave them that, they'd be quitting in two weeks. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's fun to be able to figure that out and translate that into how I teach kids and where their lessons go. Um, I also found that talent came in handy when I was training people for the state. <laughs> <laughs> Which has nothing that. to do with music, but even in your job, in my overseeing job, people and training yeah, them. And training what is them. it? I mean, you adapted how you train them to what their learning styles are. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, the material would never change because you have to teach people to do what they have to do, mm-hmm. and so it's a very specific set of skills and a specific group of tasks. But. So, like, what are, one of the tasks might be what? So, for example, maybe you have to teach someone how to review documents that come in and use them to determine um, different things about how, you know, how payments are going to be made to someone or whether they qualify for a program. <clears throat> and so you have to teach people where to look on the document for the information they need and then you have to teach them how to go into the computer programs that are used and put in the information that's needed so that things happen correctly and i i i didn't know how i would do as a supervisor knowing that i would have to train people and i had never taught anyone how to do anything with a computer. <laughs> and my computer skills when I came to the state were a little questionable. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh, no. Um, but but your people skills were superb. Well, and so I, you, I, I just, I approach every person as able to learn. Even if they're not able to learn in the way that most people would expect, everyone can learn. And there's... I think that really, you have to approach everyone with respect, even if they don't learn the way you do or the as quickly as the next person. Mm-hmm. Everyone is a human being and everyone is retitled, entitled to that kind of respect. So many of the things you say strike me as life lessons. <laughs> I, I feel like writing them all down. But I am so eager to hear you play and we've already used up more than a half hour so i'm hoping that we'll get to hear whatever you want to play for us but maybe a little narrative before you start about what it is because i'm still (laughs) eager to know how someone goes about composing music it seems (laughs) miraculous to me so the composing i did talk a little bit about 
composing for specific goals. Um, there are occasions when music will, or anything creative will just appear out of seemingly nowhere. <clears throat> um, I did some composing for specific commissions where people would ask for a piece of music to be written and composed. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I was using computers and digital music software to create music. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of pieces really, you know, it's not like I sat down and said, oh, gee, I think I need a piece that's four minutes and 32 seconds long, and it has to have a trombone and a guitar and two violins in it. <laughs> you know, I just uh, would open myself up to whatever would appear and then start playing with it, literally. And it just appears in your brain? Well, it's just sort of like, I, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. I don't even know how to explain it. I guess it could be called inspiration. Right. Um, but then, of course, the inspiration, that's just the little seed. And so what you do with the seed, you know, how do you water it? How do you cultivate it? How do you get it from being a little seed that's just maybe three notes or four notes to something that lasts two and a half minutes? And that's when you can draw on the education that you've had or or the experience that you've had um, different things like that and often I would have an idea of what I thought the end result would sound like and what actually ended up coming out was so different than the end result I first had in mind that I just gave up and stopped trying to do that <laughs> So you don't predict how the end no. result is going to sound. You no. start with a seed, and you mm -hmm. use your technique and your experience to kind of nurture it. Mm -hmm. And then you have a finished piece that sometimes surprises you. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. You know, I'll, I'll write stuff down. I'm a firm believer that a lot of, at least for me, many of the things that I came up with when I was doing this a lot would come in the middle of the night. And so I would have something to write with right by my bed all the time because, you when know, you, you hear something morning, in a dream. Gone. Oh, it's totally gone. So yeah. you have to write it down right then. And you write it down like... I wrote it in Braille. In Braille. Mm -hmm. in, in this musical note yep, Braille? In musical notation. Oh, my gosh. And then you'd wake <laughs> up in the morning and you'd feel and it I would and hope, you'd say... I would, I would look at that and I'd either say, oh, I can do something with that. Or I'd look at it and go, what the heck? <laughs> That's going to go in the trash. Oh, <laughs> but a lot of times I would explore it first. I'd, I'd go down and use the computer and the keyboard and the software, which had different instruments and things in it, and play with it a little before I gave up on it and said, oh, that can't be used for anything. Oh, my um, goodness. Well, now I'm more eager than ever to hear some of this. Well, I'm actually not going to play any of oh. my own. All right. Well, <laughs> whatever you want to play, tell us what it is before you play it. And <clears throat> Um, just listen and appreciate. Okay. I'm going to just move a puppy dog because I'm going to need to use the pedals. Okay. Do you want me to hold Shadow no. or no? No. I have to say Shadow is the best behaved dog I've ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, 
shadow is now on command, lying <laughs> down next to the mm-hmm. piano bench where Stephanie is perched. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't uh, perched, I guess. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, one of the things I found after working for the state is having a full-time job definitely decreases the time available for practicing. (laughs) Oh, I bet it Um, does. And as a result, I've really come to appreciate how much I enjoy my music making and how much I want the music that I'm playing now to be because I enjoy it, not because I'm trying to hit any particular target or satisfy any particular um, qualification standard or anything like that. So a lot of the music that I play now is not classical. Um, I have a partner who plays mandolin, and we perform at nursing homes and other places. And the neat thing about that partnership is I'm from a conservatory background. If I want to learn something, I write it down first, Mm -hmm. and I'm classically trained. I can play a lot of other styles and do, but my primary background is classical, whereas he is self-taught from a bluegrass rock and sort of jazz um, background. My goodness, two separate worlds. (laughs) learns everything by ear. Oh, my goodness. So between the two of us, I think the one common, well, the two common things are we both really love to play. And I would say, at least I'll speak for myself and say, it's one of the things that I still think is one of the reasons I was put here on this earth to do. Um, But the other thing is, we love to try stuff. So we will try anything. We've played Chinese folk music. We've done Irish music. We've done bluegrass. We've done Ozzy Osbourne, Beethoven. We will try anything. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) And it's so much fun. We've played together now since 2014. And the more you play with someone, the more trust gets developed. And it's so neat to just come to a rehearsal and say, let's try this. And even if it's an absolute disaster where we just end up laughing hysterically and thinking, wow, it's a good thing no one else was listening to that. (laughs) To be able to try things with someone is really, really fun. So I'm going to play a song called that the mandolin player found and thought that I had found because I grew up on a goat farm and he was convinced I had to have found this piece, which I didn't. It's called Too Many Goats.
one. Yeah, I and could feel because, like two minute goats. <laughs> and there's even a part where the goat's bleeding, so we have. <laughs> oh, that was yeah. fun. That was so that was fun. really fun. Well, I hate to end this, but that's certainly on a high note, I'll have to say. Stephanie, thank you. Thank You're you so welcome. much. I I can't tell you how much I appreciated not just your piano playing, but <laughs> your life's philosophy. Thanks. It's inspiring. Well, I think it's basically if you approach life as a huge learning experience and every person that you come into contact with has the potential to teach you something. Um, I... I I enjoy finding that, those kernels and taking them and using them when the opportunity comes along. Good advice for all of us. Thank you.